Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings and chapter 11, which is on page 314 in the Church Bible. One Kings chapter 11, and we read from verse 14. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Harad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king in Edom. For it happened when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army had gone up to bury the slain, after he had killed every male in Edom, because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel, until he had cut down every male in Edom. But Harad fled to go to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Harad was still a little child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, a portion of food for him, and gave him land. And Harad found great favour in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife the sister of his own wife, that is, the sister of Queen Tarpanes. Then the sister of Tarpanes bore him Ganubath, his son, whom Tarpanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Ganubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So when Harad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Harad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, Nothing, but do let me go anyway. And God raised up another adversary against him, that is Solomon. Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord Haradezer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Harad caused. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zerua, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valour. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labour force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment. And the two were alone in the field. And Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, 
and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hands and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam rose and fled to Egypt, to Shikshak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? The period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was forty years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Our God and Father, we thank you again for speaking to us from your word. And we pray that as we consider Solomon and the division of the kingdom, we pray, our God, that you would instruct us in your ways and cause us to reverence your holy name and to walk in the ways of truth and righteousness and holiness. We ask, Lord, now for the help of your Spirit that we might live enlightened and obedient lives to the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ who has purchased us with his own blood. Amen. If you cast your mind back, you will remember that when David committed murder and adultery, there were consequences for his sin. The sword did not depart from his house. So there were compromise, so there were consequences rather for Solomon's compromise with idolatry. He had gone after pagan gods. He had made this compromise in order not to offend his foreign wives. But his heart was divided. He was disloyal to God. And that his divided heart led to a divided kingdom. God, as it were, said to Solomon, Solomon, you have clung to these foreign women. You have clung to them in love. But now I am going to rip away from you the kingdom which I have bestowed upon you. It was an act of divine violence as a judgment, as a chastening for Solomon's sin. 
the direct consequence of his sin as chapter 11 and verse 11 plainly tells us. Because, says the Lord, you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. And that one is Jeroboam, who is mentioned first of all in verse 26. The section that we have just read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter now records for us the ways in which God carried out his threat. It tells us something about the ways in which God works out his will in this world using whoever he will. In this case, two foreign kings and one servant in the house or in the, in the kingdom of Solomon. Of course we realise today that there are many people who say you really believe that God works out his purposes in this world? And they are sceptical. They don't believe that God is involved in this world. They say things like, well look at what has happened in Gaza in the past few days. Hamas inspired confusion. The impression is that no one is in control. Do you really believe that God is in control in this world? That's old fashioned, that's out of date. We've finished with that. And if any idea that God should be involved chastening someone for their sin, you really believe in that kind of stuff? Yes, we do, because that's what the Bible tells us about God. The wise men of this world are always trying to assure us that the Bible is outdated, that it is irrelevant, and that you are foolish and ought to be pitied for your simplistic belief in the Bible as the Word of God. But let me remind you, that is the same wisdom that crucified the Lord of glory. The same wisdom that despised Christ and Him crucified. These verses, in the last part of 1 Kings chapter 11, like the rest of the Bible, inspire our confidence in God himself. God is to be trusted. God is in control. So first of all, what I want to show you from this chapter is the hand of God in history. What this chapter is about is tracing out how God works out his will and his purpose. It shows us the hand of God. If you turn back a few chapters to 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 4, Solomon there records, as he testifies to a foreign king, Hiram, king of Tyre, he says, Now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. Now that's very early on in his reign. That's easily understood because then we then go on to see in the remaining chapters up until chapter 10 and chapter 11 we see how God prospered this man. God had given Solomon rest from his enemies. Proverbs 16, 17, one of Solomon's own words of wisdom says, When a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies live at peace with him. And Solomon was saying that. 
But Solomon's ways are no longer pleasing to the Lord. He had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And therefore is it any surprise that we read in verse 14, Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. An adversary, a Satan. That's literally what it means, an adversary. And then again in verse 23, And God raised up another adversary against him. Rezon the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, had a days a king of Zobah. And although the phrasing is different when it comes to Jeroboam, it is very evident that God raised up Jeroboam. For we read in verse 26, Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and we won't go on to the details, also rebelled against the king. But then you'll notice in verse 31 that Ahijah, the prophet of the Lord, says to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. The language is different, isn't it? The Lord raised up an adversary. It doesn't say that of Jeroboam, but it is quite clear that when Jeroboam is to seize power and to, be, to take the ten tribes for himself, it is the outworking of God's plan and God's purpose. You see, God is sovereign. He is active. Here is God's hands-on approach to the nations, Israel, and the kings around him, and individuals. The place, the time, and the effects of these three different characters are all the direct result of the Lord's action and involvement in the affairs of the kingdoms of this world. Hadad, the Edomite, was in the south and the southeast of the kingdom. The other man, Rezon, the son of Eliada, he was in Damascus to the north. So you had trouble from the south, you had trouble from the north, then Jeroboam actually came from within the kingdom. So there was trouble outside, there was trouble inside. And this was God's doing. This is God working out his plan and his purpose. Now whatever the details are concerning why Hadad came against Solomon, and this chapter is surprisingly long in giving us the background about Hadad, the simple truth is, God is in control. God raised him and the others up against Solomon. doesn't matter whether it's a pagan king, or whether it's someone who is a servant from within the house of Ephraim. One of Solomon's well-known and valiant men. If it needs a prophet to confront Jeroboam and to inform him, then Ahijah is the prophet whom the Lord will send and does send. And he comes at the appropriate time, the appropriate place, and singles out this man and they have this private discussion in the field where a very strange event takes place. You see, God, whom we worship and serve, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who sent His Spirit into our hearts, 
This God does not sit in heaven passively. He's not there now saying, oh, Solomon has sinned, Solomon has blotted his copybook, wringing his hands, wondering what he should do now. Solomon has become unfaithful in his old age. He is not responsible for Solomon's sin. He is not responsible for any of the sins of Hadad, any of the sins of Rezon, any of the sins of Jeroboam. But he is ordering the affairs of Solomon and Israel and the surrounding nations. He is the one who makes things happen in history. He is directly involved. His approach is a hands-on approach, even though he uses means and instruments. Let us not forget that our Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and ascended at the right hand of his Father, before he went, he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he spoke that in the context of thrusting out his disciples into the nations of the world, beginning at Jerusalem, to preach the gospel. And there is no relinquishing of that authority and of that power. God is in control of all the affairs of all the nations of this world. There is never a moment when he has slept. There is never a moment when something has gone unnoticed by him. He orders all those things. We do not understand how he does it. We do not always understand what is going on in this world. But one thing we are absolutely certain is that God is in control. He is sovereign. That is absolutely foundational to everything that we believe and everything that the Bible teaches. And we should resist every effort to say, oh, well, this is just the way things happened. That can easily become a form of unbelief. This is the work of God. He is directly involved. He is in control of men and of nations. He is in control of Solomon, despite his sin. And he certainly is in control of the three adversaries whom he raises up. One in the north, one in the south, and one within the kingdom. So that is the fundamental thing. God is in control. But, now, secondly, as we go on to see precisely how God is involved, and the ways in which he works, we see, secondly, that God is faithful to his word in dealing with Solomon's sin. God always works according to his word. And we see how he works according to his word, how he is in control as he deals with Solomon's sin. Over the years I've given counsel to parents in bringing up their children and I've said to them something along this line, look, as a mother, as a father, if you are going to discipline your son and your daughter as you ought to don't ever say to them now, if you do that again I am going to punish you and then when they do it again you don't do anything you let them get away with it in other words, they come to learn that your words don't mean anything because you don't carry out 
what you say you are going to do. So you undermine your own authority. And if you do that often enough and long enough, by the time they are, certainly by the time they are teenagers, you will probably lose your control and authority over them. Because you've not made your words count. And so, when we come to look at God himself, he's not like that at all. He keeps all his words and all his threats. He is faithful to his word when it comes to Solomon's sin. Why did God raise up three men? Hadad, Rezon and Jeroboam to harass Solomon and create trouble for him. Why do you say Solomon sinned? Well, yes, he did. But you may remember that when Solomon sinned, God was already acting when he disciplined Solomon. He was acting according to something he had already said would take place. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14, when God entered into his covenant with David and promised David a throne and a kingdom that would last forever, he said in verse 14, I will be his father, regarding his descendants. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. That's exactly what is happening here. God raises up Hadad and Rezon and Jeroboam and they are in the hands of God rods in order to beat Solomon, to inflict pain upon him. It's going to be a chastening. It's going to be a judgment because Solomon has sinned. He has committed idolatry. He has compromised. He has been disloyal to the Lord. He has broken the covenant. And God says, well, if he commits iniquity, I'm not just going to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to what I see and hear. I'm going to act. I'm going to act consistently with my word. I have said, if you can sin, then I'll raise up men to inflict pain and chastening and judgment upon them. That's precisely what is happening. We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, at what we see here. God is being faithful to his word. This is the way that he rules. This is the way that he rules in the life of Solomon the king. So Harad, Rezon and Jeroboam are God's rods to beat Solomon. It'll be painful. He's going to feel it in his flesh. If you strike someone with a rod, it hurts, it stings. Solomon, you're going to feel my sting. You're going to be pained. This is chastening. But you see, the point is that God isn't doing anything out of the ordinary. He's simply faithful to his word. And if you look now in detail at verses 29 to 31, yes, we have the sudden appearance of a hydra on the scene. And the almost casual introduction in verse uh, 29. Now it happened at that time. <laughs> now it happened at that time. But this, this is God working out his purpose. There's nothing casual really about it. This is the way 
God's word is fulfilled. And incidentally, as we go through 1 and 2 Kings, if we are enabled to take our way all the way through, you will see this pattern again and again repeated. God works according to his word. Here is the specific example. From 2 Samuel 7.14, here it is worked out now in the life of Solomon. Ahijah, the messenger from God, comes with his message, and in dramatic action he takes his cloak off, and he rips it up into twelve pieces. I don't know what, Jerob- what was on Jeroboam's face. He must have wondered what madman had suddenly appeared with him in this field. What was he going to do next? And then he says, here's the twelve pieces, now you take ten of them. Jeroboam is still puzzled and perplexed. What's going on here? What does this mean? So you get a verbal declaration, an explanation. Here it is. Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, verse 31, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. This is the way God chastens Solomon. The golden age of David and Solomon's kingdom is over. God is going to tear it out of Solomon's hand and give it to Jeroboam. And it's going to be painful. It should be one thing for outsiders to afflict Solomon. But the man who really was a troublemaker was right inside Israel. This man rebelled against Solomon when he heard this. He tried to seize power for himself. But of course he couldn't do that because God said, no, Solomon's going to live the rest of his life first. You're not going to take power. God is in control of that too. But it was painful for Solomon. This was one of Solomon's own servants. A good one, a successful one. We read of that uh, in the, uh, the 28th verse. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valour and Solomon seemed that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labour force of the house of Joseph. It was a royal appointment. And this royal appointment, this royal servant, then turned against. He was God's chosen man to bring affliction and pain and chastening to Solomon. But God is being faithful to his word. God is in control of the division of the kingdom. Ten, and it says one tribe. Probably, you know, ten and one don't make twelve, do they? My maths is poor, but even I can work that out. Two tribes is probably Judah and Benjamin. They were counted as almost as one. It's the division of the kingdom and the appointment of Jeroboam as the eventual king over the larger part. The larger part of the kingdom was torn out of Solomon's hands. This was divine judgment and chastening. That's the way God works out his threats. That's the way he makes things happen in history. He is faithful. He is consistent in his judgments. Chastening rods of men brought against his king. Wrath and jealousy aroused in his heart because of the abomination of idolatry introduced into his very own dwelling place in the city of Jerusalem. 
And you will see that same pattern repeated not only in the book of Kings, but you'll see it repeated out in history. Read through those sections in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the passages we're reading through in Ezekiel, dealing with the nations, Assyria, Babylon, whoever they are, they are tools, they are instruments in God's hands to inflict judgment upon his people. Yet God will call them to account also. But they are in God's hands. And they are chastening instruments in God's hands. But God is only working out precisely what he said he would do in each occasion. But there is a third thing we need to say. Because there is another way in which God is faithful to his word. And here it takes our very breath away. You see the hand of God is seen. Yes he is in control. But God is faithful also to his promises. He keeps the word that he threatens when sin enters. But he is also faithful to his promises. Because God undertakes to preserve David's line. And you know why God preserves David's line. Because from the line of David comes the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God has a long-term view in prospect. He has his eye upon the fulfilling of his word. The amazing thing in this section from verses 26 to verse 40 is that God has far more to say through his servant Ahijah to Jeroboam about the promises that he will keep to preserve David's life than he does about the chastening of Solomon. Look at verse 32. I know it is in brackets, but the moment he has said, Ahijah has said, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you immediately. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. And then look at verse 34, a second time. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commands and my statutes. Have you got the message yet, Jeroboam? Here's the third time, verse 37. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart's desires. No, that's not the right verse. Verse 36. And to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. There's going to be a lamp and that lamp is going to burn. The light is not going to go out. And if three times are not enough, there's a fourth time. In verse 39, And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. But not forever. Now, don't let's misread this. God is not having second thoughts about the extent of the divine chastening. Sometimes, in a situation, you may overreact. And you think, I've gone over the top. And so after you've calmed down and got a sense of perspective and you step back from it, you repair the damage that has been done and you say, well, it was an overreaction and I'm not going to do 
What I said, I'm withdrawing those words because it was an overreaction. That isn't God's way of working at all. The second Samuel 7 passage is so important. It's this covenant, this promise that God made with David. Turn back to it again. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12. Let me remind you of what it says once again. And pick out the ways in which God is being faithful to his word. With regard to the promise. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. We've seen that that part has been fulfilled. But then notice, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And the revelation that came through Ahijah the Shilonite, or the Shilonite, to this man Jeroboam is consistent precisely with the words of Nathan the prophet to David. Why? Because God is the man who, God is the one who sent Nathan, God is the one who sent Ahijah. God expressly says in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 15 that the house of David will not be like the house of Saul. My mercy will not depart from the house of David even though your son commits iniquity. Chastened, yes. Removed, no. Your throne will be established forever. That's the echo then in in 1 Kings chapter 11. You see, God had already made previous decisions and commitments and he is working them out consistently once again. He is faithful to the promises to preserve David and his line and his kingdom and his throne. So even though he tears out ten tribes from Solomon's hand and gives them to Jeroboam, there remains the house of Judah. And from the house of Judah, David's house, comes the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul was removed. His house was removed. His descendants no longer stood why he had disobeyed the Lord. Solomon has disobeyed the Lord, but for the sake of David, and in accordance with his what he has promised, one tribe will remain intact. Jerusalem will remain. The kingdom will remain. The descendants will remain. Because God in his grace said it would. Because he has a long-term commitment to the sending of his son to be the saviour of the world. Did Solomon deserve anything more than Saul did? Not at all. It's grace. Sheer grace. Grace seen in divine faithfulness. God is committed to keeping his word. 
whatever Solomon did and it was an awful thing that he did breaking these commandments of God and committing idolatry God is committed to preserving and protecting the line of David and the seed and descendants of David that is why when you read through the rest of the Old Testament scriptures the promises of another David of a Messiah the root that will spring from Jesse's stock in Isaiah 11 the promise of the Davidic king in Isaiah 9 then you go through and you come to the very opening chapter the family tree of our Lord Jesus Christ and you trace it back to David and to Abraham you go to Mary's song in Luke 1 to the prophecy of Zacharias in Luke 1 you go then to the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches and he mentions David you go to Acts 13 and Peter, uh, Paul is preaching there in Pisidian Antioch and again, David is contrasted to the Lord Jesus Christ. But David, David, David keeps on being mentioned. Paul speaks in Second Timothy of my gospel. Jesus Christ of the seed of David, raised from the dead. You just cannot get away from it. And you see, here, is, here it is. God has undertaken. And you see how faithful he is. This is the way God works out his purposes. On the one hand, he tears away ten tribes out of the hand of Solomon. With one hand, he seems to destroy. And yet with the other, he is preserving. He is preserving one tribe in order to fulfill his promises. And there's no contradiction. God is faithful in the one, and he's faithful in the other. And it's grace. It's grace that does not utterly remove Solomon for his awful abomination. And it's grace that preserves him for the rest of his life and then preserves one kingdom, one tribe, in order that God's promises will not fail. And the Saviour will come from the line of David. Solomon's sin is not going to undo God's promises. Nor is God's chastening of Solomon going to bring ruin to God's plans and purposes. Hadad, Razon, Jeroboam, they are, as it were, on God's reign. He is in control of them. They can only do so much. Jeroboam rebels. When he gets to hear this prophecy of Ahijah, he rebels against Solomon. And he has to flee to Egypt. But you see, his time is not yet. Why? Because God has said Solomon's going to live out his days. And you're not going to have the throne, Jeroboam, until I appoint the time. You see, God is in complete and total control. He has a plan. He has spoken. And he works according to what he has spoken. And he is faithful to what he has said. Whether it is chastening, whether it is the promises to preserve David's life. Well, what effect should all this have upon us? How can we profitably apply this to ourselves? Um, there are many things I believe we can say, but I principally want to focus upon God himself. First of all, I think there are three things I want to say and convey to you. First of all, let's marvel at the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. He can so order events 
that on the one hand you can deal with Solomon's sin and threaten and bring that judgment and that chastening to bear upon Solomon. Yet at the same time he so works and he puts restraints and limits so he does not extinguish David's line. All the while it is as if he is watching over his own word to fulfil it precisely as he said it would be. So it is with Solomon, so it will be with these three men that God raises up as adversaries. I say he can pull down with one hand and yet he can preserve with the other. Both those things are evidence of God's working. That is the way God exercises his authority in this world. That is the way he exercises his sovereignty in this world. He is wise and we should marvel at his wisdom. And then, taking it a step further, secondly, God is to be marveled at. God is worthy of praise because of his consistency. He keeps his word, whether it is a threat, whether it is a promise. One commentator called this God's faithful sovereignty. By that he meant that God is consistent. He is faithful to all of his words. And it's part of his perfection. It's part of his very being. It's part of his character. This is the kind of God that he is. A God who is utterly reliable, utterly consistent and faithful. Whatever God says, he will do it. And 1 Kings 11 is a particular illustration of the ways in which he works out what he had said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the covenant that he made with David. God works according to previously stated principles. God works consistently. You can never turn around to God and say, that's contrary to what you said. You can't do that. Because God never works that way. Now, sometimes it may appear that he's working in a way that is contradictory to what he has said. Because we are not in the place of God. We are not sitting on his throne. We do not have the mind of God. We do not always understand. But it is faith that says God is always consistent because that is what he is revealed as in his word. God is not fickle. God does not act on whim. God does not overreact and then have to go, oh, I've gone too far. I'll have to change that now and rearrange this. That's, that's human sinfulness. That cannot be imputed to God. He is a true God. And his truth, and the truth of him as the true God, part of that is his consistency. You see, he's not soft. He's not going to compromise with Solomon and sin. He's going to deal with it. At the same time, he is going to raise up adversaries. But he's not going to let those adversaries completely destroy his promises. Their power is limited. But they will chase him. And Jeroboam will get the major chunk of the kingdom of Israel. But he won't get it all. Why? Because God has chosen it. God has ordained it. 
You see how unlike God we are sometimes. We make promises and sometimes we have no intention of keeping them. Or we make promises and then we forget we made the promises and so they don't get kept. Or on occasions we may boast that we'll do such and such and we don't have the power and ability to do it. But we wanted to make an impression. That isn't the way God works, is it? He's totally different. He's utterly consistent. Utterly consistent. Now if that is the case, then surely in the light of his dealings with Solomon in particular, should that not be an incentive to love him and to obey him? Look what happened to Solomon. Solomon was given plain warnings. The warnings were there in the book of Deuteronomy. You go and marry foreign women, the danger will be that you will follow their gods and their goddesses. He even gave a personal warning to Solomon. Which was very kind of him. He was not obliged to. Solomon already knew what the law of Moses said. But God gave a personal warning. And still Solomon went on in his sin. Solomon, don't you remember what God said to your father, David, that if you commit iniquity, then you'll be chastened with the rods of men? It's as if Solomon put his fingers in his ears, his hands over his eyes, as if he'd never read those things or heard those things. And he went on. And you know what happened? God's word was fulfilled. You say, well, if that is the pattern, then surely that is a disincentive to me to sin and an incentive to me then to live a life that is pleasing to God. Because there is no way that I am ever going to profit if I sin against God. I am going to come under His chastening. And if, if there is any one of you who is living in any known sin and you are aware of it and you are not doing anything about it, you are compromising, I would say to you, you must do something about it now. Otherwise, God's chastening hand will fall upon you. That is certain. He will scourge you. He will inflict pain in some way upon you. Not that I am saying if you experience some sickness, some pain, that that is automatically a chastening of God. I don't mean that. I'm dealing with specific sin. Solomon compromised. And God brought a certain chastening upon him. There is something more serious though. If you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not believing in him, Surely, surely you can see in the light of this. When God is faithful to his word, he speaks promises, he also speaks threats. The folly of refusing to believe in Jesus Christ, the only saviour of sinners. The promises of salvation, the love of God freely bestowed. The love of God that invites us to come and to eat and drink of Jesus Christ. To feed on Him. 
To come to him as the living bread and have eternal life. To refuse him, dishonours him, provokes him. And what if God, after many times offering his love, should withdraw himself and say, I will not offer it again to you because you have refused me. Again and again. Is he just? And then on the great day of judgment, will you be surprised? Will you turn around and say, I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't know that you would cast me away into hell because I did not believe in your son, Jesus Christ. This is unfair. This is unjust. It's all here. It's all here in the book. God has already said that is what will happen. The problem is you don't believe it will happen. What wretched unbelief. You're casting yourself, as it were, into hell and refusing the wonderful offer of love and mercy that God is ready to give in His Son, Jesus Christ. But if you don't come, God will judge you for your sin. Because you did not come to him. Come to Christ and believe upon Christ. But then there is one final thing, a third thing about God. Not only is he wise, not only is he consistent, but God keeps his promises. And God is powerful to keep his promises. God is sovereign to keep his promises. And God therefore is our comfort. And God is our strength. Because he is in control and he is working according to his promises. And he will powerfully fulfill those promises. What we have here in this passage of scripture is sad. But even when God is acting as a judge on Solomon, he is working out his promises powerfully. And we have no reason to abandon hope, even when we may feel that we have sinned and blotted our copybook, even where we have we see very little success for the kingdom of God. The fact is that God remains unchanged and unchangeably committed to his promises. It was not easy for Solomon to have and the people of God to have Hadad and Rezon and then Jeroboam. People were three wondering what on earth was happening when Jeroboam came in the reign of Rehoboam and the kingdom was divided. It was not a bad dream, it was reality. That was what was happening. But had God abandoned his word? What was the comfort and the strength of those who really believed in God? They would have gone back to these words of David, given to David and given by Ahijah to Jeroboam. God is in control. His sovereign hand governs the affairs of men, governs the affairs of nations, the timing, the placing, the events... And there is hope, there is a hope for the future. Because God has said there is a future for the people of God. There is a future. There is a king who is coming, a Messiah who is coming. And there was the foundation of their confidence. And a refusal then to panic and to banish all sense of hopelessness. 
If you were not to wallow in despair and sadness and self-pity, even when things seemingly are going against us in the church of Christ, we are to trust in God because we've seen his promises did come to fulfilment in the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of his Father now, will come again in glory for his people. You, brothers, sisters in Christ, are on your way to glory. I am on my way to glory. I can say those things. Why? Because Christ says those things. And nothing that happens here ought to dent our hopes and our confidence. That is our strength. That is our comfort. But it's also our encouragement to go on and to continue our labour. Not to be afraid. God is in control of your life. God is in control of this nation. God is in control of this church. We need not be afraid of the greatest enemy. Solomon had three raised up against him. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. We're not up to standing against Satan. But Christ is, He is the great victor. He has overcome Him. We have no fear of Him. We have no fear of death. Though we must die, Jesus Christ has overcome death. Jesus Christ has destroyed Him who has the power of death. Paul could then say, If God be for us, who can be against us? Are we going to tremble like wicked Ahaz did in the days of Isaiah? Knees knocking? Blown over, as it were, by the wind? Or are we going to say like Paul, who's going to be against us? God is for us. There are times when we talk too much about ourselves. When we're over-concerned about taking our own pulse. When we're concerned with our own moods and our own states. And when we become self-absorbed and self-pitying, what we need to do is to get out of that and turn again to a passage like this and look out to God. And look at God and what He is doing and the triumphant conclusion that He will bring about at the end of history according to His Word. Christ. It's all mapped out for us. God isn't going to do anything contrary to his promises. God is going to fulfill his promises. And you remember how Paul says at the end of that triumphant chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, having set out this incorruption, this incorruption shall put on, sorry, this corruption shall put on incorruption, this mortal shall put on immortality. Death will be swallowed up in victory, he says. Your labour is not in vain in the Lord. It makes a huge difference to your confidence, to your strength, to your encouragement. It's a spur then to go on serving God. Whatever the outcome may be, whatever is happening, it will always be worthwhile. His cause will not perish at his hands and it certainly will not perish because of his enemies Christ is over all and you are in Christ and no one can take you and pluck you out of his hand 
God could pluck ten tribes out of Solomon's hand. But only God could do that and give it to Jeroboam. God has put you in Christ. And there is no one in heaven or earth who will remove you from Christ and remove those promises about Christ and about his church that are here in the word of God. Let us make that then our strength, our comfort and our encouragement. God himself, faithful to all his word. Amen. We do indeed praise you, our God, for your wisdom, for your consistency, your faithfulness, both in chastening and your promises to protect and to keep your promise to David that from his descendants one would come, even the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in him you would fulfill all your purposes among all the nations of this world. Lord, enlarge our minds and our hearts to comprehend more of your will and your purpose, to bring all things under Christ in the fullness of times. Lord, we thank you for the grace that drew us to Christ. Have mercy upon anyone who is still without him. Grant them life, we pray this night, through the preaching of the word and through the working of your Holy Spirit in their hearts. Grant us the grace then that we need who believe to labour on, strengthened, encouraged, unafraid to face the fall. Lord, we ask these mercies in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.